Take your Bibles, if you would, and let's look at Revelation chapter 3, the third chapter of Revelation. And of course, you know, this has been very instructive to us, this section of this prophecy. I don't know about you, but it's been humbling. It's just one corrective after another, one charge after another, one warning after another for the church of Jesus Christ. I can't imagine a richer section with regard to the, the body life of the church and how we collectively serve the Lord and ways that the Lord here as the head of his church comes alongside his people with cautions and commendations and even condemning them and rebuking them and calling them to repentance. It's been sweet, certainly in our day, it's been so needful because evangelicalism has been needing a call to repentance. And so we've been riveted by these letters which were delivered by these chosen messengers who are a part of each congregation and therefore included in whatever is said by the Lord. We come now to the sixth of the seven letters, and this one will be similar to a previous letter where there's a commendation here and there is no call to repentance in the church at Philadelphia. It's important to note at the beginning here that that we as a people of God must remember that no matter what we suffer, no matter what the difficulty that comes against the church of Jesus Christ and what we have to endure God is the ultimate record keeper and he as Lord of his church watches it all and promises to restore his people. He promises to reward his people. He promises to withhold no good thing from his people. He promises that eternity will be the kinds of things that have never entered into the mind of man or the imagination of humanity for all those that love him. And so it doesn't really matter what we endure. We're to remember that the Lord of his church is overseeing his people and our influence and what hostility comes against us. In fact, I love the fact that in Hebrews chapter 6 and verse 10, you have this great promise that the Lord is mindful of our labors. It says here, after a passage warning of apostasy in Hebrews 6, beloved, we are convinced of better things concerning you and things that accompany salvation, though we're speaking in this way. In other words, we're speaking about those who have tasted of the heavenly gift and have seen the things of the Lord and have maybe believed insofar as a superficial belief is concerned and experienced the body life of God's people and then fallen away and there is no repentance offered to them. They're like Esau. And though he's speaking in this way, he's convinced that these believers who are reading this are going to see better things, are going to see real salvation. And he says, look, I know what you're going to be thinking. You're going to be thinking, yes, but we are treated unjustly. Yes, but we do come under suffering. This is a hard life. But then this is what the verse says in chapter 6, verse 10. For God is not unjust. That is an interesting way to to encourage God's people. Are you imagining somehow that God is unjust? 
God is not unjust so as to forget your work and the love which you've shown toward his name in having ministered and in still ministering to the saints. And he says, I want you to be fully assured with hope until the end. That's interesting. He's saying, I know what your heart's going to be tempted in. You're going to be tempted to think God is unjust. In what way? In that he'll forget your work. He'll forget your labors. And he'll forget the way that you loved in the face of a lack of it. He'll forget the way that you ministered to the saints when it was a thankless role. It was a thankless ministry. And maybe even the credit was given to someone else and and you didn't get your earthly due and there were no applauds or accolades for you. But you showed love toward his name. You worked and labored for his name. You loved as he loved. The promise is that God is not unjust and that he would forget such things. If you look at 2 Thessalonians chapter 1, you have a, a similar, very encouraging promise. The second epistle to the Thessalonians in chapter 1, this is absolutely marvelous. Paul says, We ought to always give thanks to God for you, brethren, as is only fitting. Because your faith is greatly enlarged and the love of each of you toward one another grows ever greater. So here's the love aspect. They're serving one another with love. Therefore, we ourselves proudly speak of you among the churches of God for your perseverance and faith in the midst of all your persecutions and afflictions which you endure. And then he says that Your persecutions and your afflictions are an indication of something. A very clear indication of the work that God is doing through you. And note what he says, 2 Thessalonians 1 verse 5. This perseverance and faith in the midst of your afflictions is a plain indication of God's righteous judgment so that you will be considered worthy of the kingdom of God for which indeed you are suffering. All right, there it is. It's this enduring, this faithful life in the midst of afflictions is the indication very clearly that God has a righteous judgment in which he's considered you worthy of the kingdom. And then verse six gives us the other side. For after all, it is only just for God to repay with affliction those who afflict you. Wow, that's interesting. God knows your labor. He knows your affliction. And he, he has justice that will come whereby he will, he will make good on that. Those who have afflicted the saints and the work of the church and pushed against it, the Lord watches his church. He takes care of his people. He marks it out. And it is just for him to repay with affliction those who afflict us and to give relief to you who are afflicted and to us as well when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven with his mighty angels in flaming fire. What are they gonna do when they come? Verse eight, they're dealing out retribution to those who do not know God and to those who do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. They're gonna pay the penalty of eternal destruction away from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his power when he comes to be glorified in his saints on that day and to be marveled at among all who have believed for our testimony to you was believed. And so to this end, we pray for you always that our God will count you worthy of your calling and fulfill every desire for goodness and the work of faith with 
power. Why? So that Christ's name will be glorified. Here is the same idea. God is not forgetful. He's He's not unjust. He will deal out retribution. It's only just for him to do so. He's marking down all the afflictions. When you endure, it is not because God is some sort of, you know, uh, person in heaven, some deity in heaven who likes to see his people suffer and then sort of enjoys the entertainment of it. This God cannot do. Not at all. There is justice coming. And he will deal out retribution, but he will give relief to those who are afflicted when the Lord Jesus will be revealed from heaven. And so what is marked out as we come to this next letter, what is marked out about this church is two things. The one, in the midst of an horrific affliction, an oppression against them, a hostility against them, they remain steadfast, and notice the language in Revelation chapter 3, verse 8, I know your deeds, behold, I have put for you an open door which no one can shut, because you have a little power and have kept my word. Notice verse 10, because you have kept the word of my perseverance, and therefore I'm going to keep you from the hour of testing, which is about to come on the whole earth. So the first noteworthy characteristic for which they are commended is that they remain steadfast. They're a church unlike the others that were condemned, tolerating error, boasting about ministry but dead on the inside, uh, people who were leading others into immorality, lacking in church discipline, compromise at the pulpit level, others bragging about their ability to identify false teachers, but over here have opened the door to other wicked errors. Not Philadelphia. Philadelphia was steadfast in their walk with Christ. The second noteworthy characteristic is that they were word-centered. They were all about keeping the words of Christ. You have kept my word. You have kept the word of my perseverance. Uh, the, the term here is, is basically the term for preserved or protected within or carried so as to hold fast and not lose. That's the idea. They held the word fast and did not lose it. They protected it. They passed it on accurately. They thought about it accurately. They studied it accurately. They believed it fully. Their minds were trained in it, hearts saturated in it. They were a word-centered and steadfast congregation. Beloved, what a commendation for a church for the duration of its life and influence centered on the revelation of Jesus Christ as he has revealed himself to be and immersed in that in order that they remain steadfast and the fruit was real fruit. They were steadfast. This is an amazing, amazing commendation. Now, Philadelphia, you know, because the letters are going along the route here in these seven churches in Asia Minor, about 25 miles now southeast of Sardis, you have this, this church, Philadelphia. And um, strangely enough, the, 
the city, though long established, had run into a major problem uh, about 20 years into the the um, year of our Lord, so about A.D. 20, or maybe just a few years earlier than that, maybe around 17 A.D., there was a massive earthquake that history tells us uh, leveled about a dozen of these kinds of cities that were full of commerce at the time. The reason is because the outlying district was full of volcanic activity. In fact, they actually had the, the name for it, which was that particular name for a place that burns down, a place that crumbles under burning. And so these dozen cities along this route were basically decimated. It was unprecedented at the time. Historians say that Philadelphia bore the brunt of it and literally were so... Um, so beaten down in the fear of, of such a massive earthquake and all of its residual when the city was destroyed. And of course, Rome had not yet moved in to sort of rebuild. That didn't happen until about 40 years later. But by the time it happened and afterwards, the city basically moved out of the, the city center. People just went to the outlying areas in droves and the city spread out and its economics suffered greatly. Uh, there was uncertainty and basically it became kind of a, a mound of rubble, a few people doing things within the city, a, a route through the, the, the lane for commerce and then outlying areas where people began to settle. The empire, of course, came in and, and later reestablished the area, trying to help cities rebuild. Philadelphia became kind of an agricultural center because as people stayed away from the rubble of the city center for the next few decades, literally, uh, it, it basically turned into an agricultural area. And so um, fields and crops and corn was huge, but primarily vineyards were the trade of the day. It was productive, it stabilized the economy, though it still limped along and suffered. Uh, it may very well be because there is a synagogue sort of referred to here in verse 9 and some Jews referred to who were coming against the church. It may very well be that, that uh, Jewish communities were near this area because uh, Rome tried to rebuild several of the dozen cities and so there was commerce in the other places and Sardis still remained somewhat strong in its economics and so it may very well be that, uh, that those other cities became the viability for anyone living in the outlying areas of Philadelphia after the great earthquake. What you note here in this letter, first of all though, is, is the way that Jesus Christ himself opens up with titles of himself as delivered by this messenger. You note in verse seven that it is opening with the same letter writing that has happened in all of them to the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, and then this long title, he who is holy, who is true, who has the key of David, who opens and no one will shut, and who shuts and no one opens. That one says this, and then the content of the letter. The verse, uh, the, the statement in the beginning of verse eight is familiar to us because this is the Lord himself of his church indicating that he has his eye on his church, and we've seen that over and over again. 
But in the rest of the letter, he, he calls our attention very sharply in verse 8. Behold, some have disputed the accuracy of the translation there. But essentially, you can see that the, the writer is recording for us that the Lord is calling our attentiveness to this moment. Pay careful attention to what I'm going to say to the church at Philadelphia. I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Referring back to the, the comments in verse 7. Because you have a little power and have kept my word and have not denied my name. Behold, I will cause those of the synagogue of Satan who say that they are Jews and are not, but lie about it. I will make them come and bow down at your feet and make them know that I have loved you. Because you have kept the word of my perseverance, I'll keep you from the hour of testing that hour which is about to come upon the whole world to test those who dwell on the earth. And I am coming quickly. Hold fast what you have so that no one will take your crown. Again, overcoming language. Verse 12, he who overcomes, I'll make him a pillar in the temple of my God. He will not go out from it anymore. And I'll write him on him the name of my God and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven from my God and my new name. This is all possessive language. You're possessed by me, marked out by me, set apart for me. This, of course, is wonderful news because of what Jesus says of himself in the opening salvo in verse 7. He speaks of himself as one who is set apart. So what I want to do just tonight is just work our way through these statements about Christ himself, which then sets the groundwork for this great letter and commendation about their steadfastness and about their willingness to center their life on the word of God and hold fast the revelation of Christ. The first thing we notice here in these titles of the Lord is that his lordship over his church is a holy lordship. It is a holy lordship. To the angel of the church in Philadelphia write, he who is holy. This isn't so much speaking about moral purity, although that's always included with holiness as it relates to God. But here the idea is more messianic in the sense that it is speaking of his being set apart for God, unto God, as the one who has come for God to do the work of redemption. In other words, he is possessed by God. He is sent forth by God to do this great work. Therefore, he's Lord of his church by being set apart by the Almighty. And of course, this is language familiar to us from the Old and the New Testament, that Christ is holy. Christ is the Holy One, Psalm 16, verse 10. We read it this morning in the Acts chapter 2 sermon where Peter pulls Psalm 16, 10 into his sermon. You will not abandon my soul to Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to undergo decay. Because David was a prophet and because he knew that there would be an eternal one sitting on the throne of David, Acts chapter 2, Peter says he looked forward and he prophesied about that very issue, that Christ was holy and the grave therefore could not hold him. Why is that important to the church here? Because if the Lord is going to keep them if he's going to hold on to them as they've kept his word, if he's going to keep them from the hour of testing as it indicates in verse 10, then he has to be the one who has satisfied God with his holiness and therefore he is now Lord and Christ. He is God's servant set apart to do the job and he did do the job. 
That would be very important for a church to know who's about to face some of these terrible things given to them in this prophecy. Conversely, Israel had on occasion, lots of occasions, abandoned God as the instrument of the truth. They were to be set apart unto God and holy unto him, but they denied the Holy One of Israel. Isaiah 1 verse 4 just comes right out of the gate. They have abandoned Yahweh. They have despised the Holy One of Israel. They've turned away from him. Instead of being set apart as an instrument like the Lord himself, they had despised the Holy One. I always love it when, uh, you know, a passage just cuts right to the chase. And sometimes in counseling, when you have to get serious with someone about what's really going on in their heart, they will, they will basically stiff arm the counsel that's being given. And, uh, and then you don't see them anymore. They stop making appointments with you. They stop seeing you. They sort of get sketchy on whether they even show up at church. And someone will ask me, what, what's going on with them? They seem distant. Look, Proverbs 18.1 is as clear as it gets. He who separates himself seeks his own desire and quarrels against all sound wisdom. What's happening? You're, you're turning away from being set apart unto God. You're turning away from being used by God as his instrument. Why are you doing that? Because you are interested in your own desire. You're quarreling against sound wisdom. It's important that the church know that that we're to be keepers of God's word, that we might be set apart unto him the way that Christ himself is set apart for the redemptive work by his father. And so he is titled the one who is set apart. He's holy. Now this, of course, is all over the book of Revelation, but in chapter six of Revelation, you have a reference to the Lord and these terms are used. Revelation chapter six, verse 10 and they cried out with a loud voice saying, how long, O Lord, holy and true, will you refrain from judging and avenging our blood on those who dwell on the earth? To be set apart unto God and usefulness is to be both Lord and Christ. That is to say, you are the Messiah who saves, but you're also the judge who brings about retribution. And so he's holy in the sense that he's set apart unto God for the whole task, redemption and retribution. That's important for the church to know that Christ, as I said, is not going to forget. He will deal out retribution. It is just. Who's going to do it? The Lord who is holy. The one who is holy. You remember when Jesus was on the earth, even, even the forces of darkness just could not hold it in when they were around him. I've told you before that demonic activity, it seems on, on the you know, global Richter scale, sort of went went off the charts when Christ was on the earth, when his feet were on the earth, the earth was pulsing with the divine presence and demons and demon activity seemed to be at an all time high. And every time he showed up and some person was demon possessed, the demons themselves, it was forced out of them. They would say, what have you come here for? Are you here to torment us before it's time? Holy one of God. And they would say of him that he is holy. Mark 1.24, they called him that. It was the right title for him. And it was a sign of true faith because when he 
was with his disciples, John 6, 69. They said to Jesus, we have believed and have come to know that you are the Holy One of God. Listen, if you confess Christ in the church, you are confessing that he is the set-apart one. He's set apart for redemption as the second Adam. He is pure and holy, and he's set apart for retribution. He is the Lord of his church. He will deal out retribution. It's only just for him to do so. 1 John 16, uh, 1 John rather 1, verse 6 through 10. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and you all know. There it is. You have an anointing from the Holy One. The Spirit of God in the midst of his people is still the servant of God, set apart for moral purity and divine justice and wisdom from his word. Set apart as instruments. Hey, if you have an anointing from the Holy One, then you're set apart. And you all know how you're supposed to live. You say you know God and then you walk in darkness, you lie and the truth is not in you. He's the holy servant. He's set apart by the Father to accomplish his redemption. You remember when angel Gabriel told Mary what was gonna happen, she said, I, I, I don't know how this is going to be and in Luke 1, 35, the angel said to her, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. It's, it's poetry, really, uh, to describe, not, not human sexuality. It is poetry to describe the power of God overshadowing a human life and impregnating a person who has never known a man. The normal biological processes did not operate. This was a divine work. And so what was the result? And because of this, or as a result the holy offspring will be called the son of God. The holy offspring, the one who will be set apart, the one who is the servant of God to bring about redemption and retribution, the Lord of the church. It's so important if you're gonna remain steadfast, it's so important if you're gonna be word-centered that you know the word himself, the holy one, and that you realize that he is holy and that he will deal out retribution based upon the fact that he himself is righteous. In fact, when Paul preached at Mars Hill in Acts chapter 17, verse 31, he says to those pagans in that community, God has fixed a day. He has fixed a day in which he will judge the world in righteousness through a man whom he has appointed. There it is, a man whom he has set apart, the man Christ Jesus. And he furnished proof to everyone that that is the man by raising him from the dead, Paul said. So he's the holy offspring set apart unto God. He's the instrument of redemption, the instrument of retribution. It's important for the church to know that. He who is set apart. I love the fact also here that Jesus Christ says that this message comes to the church from him who is true. Him who is true. <laughs> And it's, of course, a term that is, again, used throughout the book of Revelation. You see it in Revelation 19.11 and 21.5 and 22.6, faithful and true. It's used in conjunction with the term for faithfulness, always faithful, always truthful, always faithful, always true. Why? Not because he speaks truth, that's true, but he is truth. He speaks truth because he is truth. He can do no other. Why is that important for the church to know? Because if you are a keeper of the word, then you know the word, the truth, the spirit of truth, 
He is the way, the truth, and the life. You must be able to stand on he who is true. Revelation 16, 7, they said, Yes, O Lord God, the Almighty, true and righteous are your judgments. The fact that he's true means that every judgment he makes is righteous. In fact, look at John 5 for a moment, just with your finger in Revelation there. John 5 speaks both of his authority, his lordship in terms of his being set apart and holy, and it speaks of this great truth that he is the judge and has a righteous judgment. John chapter 5, Jesus, of course, you remember, was speaking about healing on the Sabbath. They were, of course, very upset with him. And he had said to them, look, the Father is working and so am I. Everything you see me do, it's the Father doing it. You say you know the Father and you don't love me, but listen, whatever I do, the Father's doing it. And whatever the Father is doing, I'm doing it. Verse 19, I say to you truly, the Son can do nothing of himself unless it is something he sees the Father doing. Whatever the Father does, these things the Son also does in like manner. For the Father loves the Son and shows him all the things that he himself is doing. And the Father will show him greater works than these so that you will marvel. He's not just talking about the miracles that he did. He's saying greater works in that he's going to have global salvation and a full revealing of his glory complete with full redemption for believers and full retribution. Those are the things at which the world's going to marvel. Greater works, magnificent works. But now look at verse 21. For just as the Father raises the dead and gives them life, even so the Son also gives life to whom he wishes, for not even the Father judges anyone. He's given all judgment to the Son. Why? so that all will honor the Son, even as they honor the Father. Verse 23, if you do not honor the Son, you do not honor the Father who sent him. So truly, truly, I say to you, he who hears my word. So here you have the word of Christ immediately um, associated with and equal to the truth of Christ and Christ himself who is truth. It's so critical for the church to know this. We... Keep the word of his perseverance. We keep the word as revealed to us. We look to Christ and his word. We don't invent a different Christ. The problem with the church today and the reason that they do not withstand persecution and they capitulate on all of these moral issues that our culture's all up in arms about is because we are inventing a different Christ. Christ is true. He's not only holy and therefore he can judge and deal out retribution, but he will do it based upon his word. He is true. He is truth. If you deny the scriptures, you deny Christ. If you mess with the scripture, you mess with Christ. If you alter what is said in the Bible to capitulate to some moral standard in the culture, you have attempted to alter the trueness of Christ. This is what's wrong with the church. We don't love the fact that he's righteous and true. He's a righteous judge because he himself is true. And yet the scriptures say that the almighty is true and righteous. Therefore, all of his judgments are righteous. Therefore, if the Lord allows you to go through a testing, an hour of testing, but then holds you from another hour of testing, you can trust it. Why? Because you've kept his word. You have believed it as he revealed it. You've held it fast. This is a word-centered congregation. How do you encourage one another in that? 
Well, the first thing you do is get clarity on it. You know, you, if you're new in our church, and I was talking with some visitors, sweet visitors today, they're just saying, we just, we were in a previous ministry and we just didn't get any clarity. Here we have clarity. They go to a, you know, some seminar on Saturday, clarity. They go to some Bible study and a weekday evening, clarity. They come on Sunday to a fellowship group, clarity. They hear from the pulpit, we're working toward clarity. This is, this is not an issue of, of, of the freedom to mess around with what God says because this is the truth of Christ. When we keep his word, we, we are bound to conform to it. And so the first thing you do is you work toward clarity. If our Savior is the one who is true, then I want to be sanctified in your truth. Your word is truth. It's the only thing that sanctifies, the only thing that brings clarity. I love the fact that I don't have to be some expert counselor who figures out somebody's problems. You just open up the word of God. Hebrews 4.12 says, it divides between thoughts and intentions. You, you got some motive that you're trying to hide from me as a pastor? I'll just open the word and let it get its clarity. You want to harden against that? You harden against Christ, the one who is true. I don't have to worry about that. I grieve for you, but ultimately the clarity is there. You want to do an assessment of your spiritual life? Don't draw conclusions outside of what is spoken in Scripture. Christ will tell you what is true of your heart and your mind and your life. This is what our church is about because this is the Savior who is true. I need not go anywhere else. He alone has the words of eternal life. His words are spirit and our life. I don't come to God's word and see ink on a page. The content rises off of it as living and active through which I was born again, 1 Peter says. I was regenerated by the truth. Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of Christ. I believed it. Repentance and faith were granted to me through the truth. I got clarity through the truth. How... How sweet the feet of those who bring good news. I'm so glad the Lord sent forth his truth and gave us a mouthpiece who would not mess with it. Somewhere in there, somebody brought a gospel and they didn't mess with the truth of scripture. They just gave it to me straight forward. And then that came through my saved father and it came to me straight at it. And they didn't mess with it. Anytime someone messed with the truth and messed with Christ, I, I got a false message and that never helped me. So important for the church of Philadelphia to know that what they're being promised here comes from one who can speak no else, nothing else but truth. He's faithful. He's true. He is truth. It's not only, it's not only a lordship that is holy, but it's a true lordship. Thirdly, it is a supreme lordship. It's a supreme lordship. Look at this final quality here. This is the one, he says, who has the key of David and who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one opens. This is absolutely amazing because he is directly quoting the prophet Isaiah. 
You remember that in Isaiah chapter 22, there was a command of the Lord to replace the chief steward. And Hezekiah's household was to have this replacement. And this new steward was to be given the key. And that key would be the only way in or out of the royal house, the palace. And in another sense, in a larger, wider sense, it was, it was metaphorically speaking, the access to God's people and to the kingdom and to the authority that would declare that you're part of God's people. So this is the gatekeeping for the kingdom. Who gets in and who's kept out? I love that because here you have what appears to be a group of Jews that were hanging around, perhaps because the economics were still okay, somewhere in and around the vicinity, and they were saying that they are the people of God, and Jesus says here they're lying, verse 9, and I want them to know that I loved you. <laughs> I love the children of the palace. I love the royal children. They're not royal children. They're illegitimate children. They claim to be mine, but they are a synagogue of Satan, Jesus calls them. And I am going to show them that they have no authority, they have no access. You are the children of the king, you are the children of palace life, you are the children of the kingdom, and they are gonna come and bow down before the kingdom, before the king, and before the king's people. This is an amazing quote from Isaiah 22. Access to the king, guaranteed by Christ. In a sense, he functioned as sort of, as one commentary said, the, the secretary of state. This, by the way, is very clearly connected to, to the, the apostolic succession when Jesus said to the apostles and to Peter, Look, who do men say that I am? And Peter said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. And he said, flesh and blood didn't reveal this to you, Peter, but my father is in heaven. And you are that bedrock and you are the one who has now the keys. I am going to heaven. I am sending the Holy Spirit and the gates of Hades are not gonna overcome this church that I'm going to build and the keys are given to you. Under apostolic authority and revelation, you're going to say who's in and who's out. You know, that's another reason why it's so critical that the Lord says this here, because in his church, what he wants us to do is not lay the authority for someone's profession of faith on them, on the profession itself, but on the evidence given in scripture. If somebody comes in those doors and says, I am a follower of Christ, I am. I am thrilled that they might indeed be in the kingdom, but it is their life and their submission to Christ and their humility before Christ and their obedience to his word that tells the story. You will know them by their fruits. Time and truth do go hand in hand. You must watch their life. The church has far too often been um, looking at the the keys to the kingdom as somehow uh, optional. People can come in and go anytime they please with any kind of profession, it really doesn't matter. I remember there was a season about 25 years ago where the pragmatic church movement was saying, hey, do you love Jesus? Then come on, you're one of us. 
Well, which Jesus? Who, who are we talking about? And what you have here is a reference to the wonder that, that this Lord and Christ has the key of David. He is the one who is to sit on the eternal throne. He is the one who gives access to the kingdom. He's the one who gave apostolic authority to, to uh, begin the days of the new covenant. He is the one who set forth his word by inspiration through their pen. He is the one who tells us who's in and who's out. He's the one. He passes his keys on to his followers. It is his word. And he will build his church and the gates of Hades will not prevail against it. That is to say, you won't have ultimately a final satanic victory over the, the true church of Jesus Christ because he knows those who are his. They have this seal. He knows those who are his and anyone who names the name of the Lord should abstain from wickedness, 2 Timothy 2. And so in this context, this describes Jesus as the Messiah, the one who sits on the throne and he controls the entrance. He alone controls it. Notice verse 12, you have there that he will give the overcomer this wonderful place and this name, the name of my God will be written on him and the name of the city of my God, the new Jerusalem, which comes down out of heaven. That's access. That's access through Christ alone. And, and in the Isaiah context, the original context of this open shut idea, it, it was a stress on authority, a stress on the gatekeeper, the ultimate gatekeeper, the power to keep one out and let one come in. That's, of course, back to that reference in John 5. God the Father has given all judgment to the Son, and he will give life to whom he wishes. And he will keep people out if he so chooses. He gives life to whomever he wishes. There's absolute power. There's absolute authority. This is, on a practical level in Philadelphia, a strong pushback against these false people of God, these who claim to be the true people of God, but who were lying, they were the ones who probably uh, put some sort of, almost like in church history, the Catholic interdict. They would put it over people. You can never be forgiven. That's what popes would do. Popes would go to kings, and the way that they would get kings to bow the knee is they would perform an interdict against the king, and the king was, would shudder because the pope allegedly had authority to be the gatekeeper and tell the king, you're out. You will not be forgiven. And what would happen? The king would eventually, under the, under the fear of it uh, and his night sleeplessness, would get up and he would succumb to what the authority of the church would say. And in a sense, that's probably what happened here. These Jews had probably given some sort of ultimatum. If you don't come through us, if you don't come through our teaching, if you're not recognized by us, then you do not belong to God. And this poor persecuted congregation is told clearly in an unmatched declaration by Christ that he alone is the gatekeeper. And because they have kept his word and had not denied his name, he will demonstrate that he's the one who shuts and no one opens. And he's the one who opens and no one will shut. When Christ closes the door 
to the false teachers, the false messiahs who want to come against the church, it is closed. And the decision will not be altered. When he wants to open the door to someone who, whom false religions reject, like us, like those of us who adhere to the scriptures, like those of us who don't believe in the mystical, like those of us who don't listen to our intuition or the thoughts that bubble up into our mind, like those of us who don't believe in our best life now, like those of us who don't look for riches and prosperity here, like those of us who don't believe that God promises some physical healing in this life here and now. We're not part of the health, wealth, and prosperity movement. We're not part of the cults that are all about rituals. We're not part of those who bow down and burn candles and believe they gain some merit in some treasury chest before God for what they do. We're not those who mingle faith with works. And we are rejected by those movements and false systems because we believe it is by faith alone and we adhere to the scriptures alone. And they reject us. And it would be easy to be tempted to become fearful and believe we've got to conform to the crowd and conform to those who are capitulating. It's easier. It's, it's much smoother. It goes better for us. We have greater outreach. I was talking recently about the tendency in evangelical leadership on the grand scale, that is to say those who are on YouTube, those who are the most popular, to, to write a book that has leaks in it that has areas that are sketchy. In once orthodox ministries, there are ways that they're now teaching things about the gospel that, that aren't quite clear from scripture. It isn't what they used to teach. And yet they're popularized. And you just get worn out. I get worn out. People say to me, are you really gonna criticize that guy? Are you really gonna go after that guy? And I'm saying, look, it's not personal. I have no ax to grind. In fact, I'd like to have a nice, peaceful ministry where I just go home and sip some coffee and come back here and have some fun with all you wonderful people. That would be nice. But what is concerning to me is that those subtle little moments where someone has not been clear about the scriptures, it becomes a drift in the church and it threatens the sheep God has given to our elders to care for. That's a concern to me. And so we have to go back to ask the question, are they in or are they out? We have to go back to the question, are they speaking on behalf of God's word or themselves? There's a whole push today to get us away from the hardline gospel stance that has given the church a measure of stability for decades, and there is this now push to go toward a socialized gospel that basically says that the common graces of God are wonderful things to give to the unbeliever as a way of opening the door. Listen, Christ opens the door and Christ shuts it. I don't open the door. I don't have the keys if the key is handed to me, it's given to me by Christ and he has his hand on it. It is his word. He tells us who the door is open to and who it is shut to. And when he opens it, it's unshuttable. When he closes it, you cannot open it. You know, it's interesting. An oft misused passage is in Matthew 18 on the church discipline process. You remember when Matthew records that Jesus says there, 
that wherever two or three are gathered together in my name, there I am in their midst. And then we sometimes see that misused as some sort of discussion about Jesus and involving himself in a prayer meeting. The text itself actually in its context is about the, the work of the church as a representative emissary of Christ's authority on the earth in a church discipline case. And what does it say there in Matthew 18? Whatever you loose in, whatever you loose on, loosen on earth or let go or release on earth, it shall have been loosed in heaven already. And whatever you bind on the earth, it shall have been bound in heaven already. What is that saying? That's saying when someone is in sin and they won't repent and the church says you are bound in your sin, we now have to disfellowship with you. It has already been declared in heaven to be so because it is Christ that tells us what the fruit of true saving faith is and not human beings. And so all we're doing is as emissaries of Christ declaring who is in and who is out here on the earth? I can't see the heart. We just open the word and say, you know what? You're unrepentant of your sin. You keep that up and you're going to be disfellowshipped out of the church and treated like an unbeliever, like your profession of faith isn't real. And then, then people will say, well, you're judging. Listen, I am merely speaking on behalf of the Lord of his church who opens and shuts. He tells us who's in and who's out. Pragmatism is an attempt to soften that reality, to blur the line so that we become usurpers in trying to open and close. And we don't have that right. Not apart from Christ. He is the one with the key of David. He opens, he closes. And when he opens, it is his to do. And you cannot thwart that. And when he closes, it is his right and it cannot be thwarted. No matter what men think they're doing, oh, I affirm that you're in Christ. Really? Then they've never humbly submitted to God's word. They've never truly repented and believed in Christ. You say they're a believer? On what basis? Christ has the key. He opens and he shuts. I don't. Such an important title for this sweet, precious church. Such confidence. He says, I know your deeds, verse eight. Look, he is the sovereign, supreme Lord of his church. He's the true Lord of his church. He is the one who is the faithful Lord of his church. He is the holy Lord of his church. And if he says that you have kept my word and therefore I will uphold you, then you can trust that and you can be steadfast and you can be a word-centered church and be faithful. I want this commendation. We say what Christ says. We don't believe that it's enough to say to an unbelieving world, hey, I just want you to flourish in the common grace of God. That's not enough. I've helped lots of people become better human beings in our neighborhood by just helping one another. Those are the common graces of God. God sends the rain on the just and the unjust. That does not make them a part of the family of God. Sooner or later, I've got to turn the corner and say, let me help you with, with what's going to happen when you meet Christ. I'm not here to open the kingdom to them. I am a herald of the truth and Christ opens and shuts. He tells us who's in the kingdom and who's not. And when he decides... 
He is the supreme Lord of his church. And so ostensibly here in this letter, those Jews who are lying about being the people of God, they're out. They're shut out. And it doesn't matter how much affliction they bring, how much persecution they bring, they are out because Jesus calls them liars. And one day, just as Philippians 2 promises, that at the name of Jesus, that is to say, Lord Every knee will bow, and there will be the people of God with their Savior. Having been brought in, the kingdom was opened to God's people, and no one can thwart that. There we stand with the Lord, and these who have been the enemies of Christ and the enemies of people, part of the synagogue of Satan, they will bow down at the feet of God's people. Why? Because he is going to make them know that he loves us. (laughs) They didn't love us. They hated us, but he loved us. Who do you want to be loved by? The world? Who are outside and no one can open? Or do you want to be loved by Christ? The kingdom is open to you and he will make the world bow down to his throne and you standing with him and they will know in that moment that he has loved his people. What a great message for this church. What a comforting message for this church. I know your deeds. Pay attention to what I'm going to say. I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. Think of it. Ministry influence. I mean, you would be thinking under such affliction, it's over. It's over. It brought to mind the history of this church in the last 20 years. There had been a devastating crisis, a moral crisis at the leadership level back in 1997. A senior pastor with a secret life of shame uncovered. So many in this church sitting here are of the old guard. They were here when that happened. And uh, the next four years, they tried to recover, tried to get to the place where they could understand what God wanted. And I remember a dear brother in our ministry who's in our leadership still, he said that nearing the end of that four years before I was even candidating, they were having conversations, a few of them, that at the end of the conversations, comments were made like, well, We're not sure God's hand is on the church anymore. There's just a few of us left, so to speak, compared to what it was, and and we're going to be here. We're just going to commit to remain here until the last person, and we'll close and lock the doors when the time comes. And sometimes that's that's how you get to be feeling when when the church gets pummeled like that by Satan. And of course, there are countless stories like that with far worse circumstances all across the globe where, where there doesn't seem to be an open door. And it seems like Satan is able to shut those doors of influence. It just seems to us from our earthly perspective like we, we cannot seem to get ahead. Can there be more comforting words than these? I have put before you an open door which no one can shut. When the Lord says, I'm going to use a ministry and the opportunity is not over, no one's going to stop that. 
God had a plan for this church. And the faithfulness of some senior saints were surely the, the nucleus of that plan because they were the prayer warriors. And when I came, I even wanted to run a couple times. It was a pretty messy situation. I loved the leaders and were beginning to, you know, was beginning to love the people, but it was, it was difficult for all of us. And those senior saints, they were used by God. They were those like the few here in Philadelphia. They were those who kept the word of his perseverance. They were those who knew that this is the Lord who is holy. This is the Lord who is true. This is the Lord who has the key of David. He says who's in and who's out, and he says whether the church is going to still be used as an instrument to bring about the work of redemption, no matter the affliction. And he'll open if he wants to open. I admired the humility of saying, I'll close the doors. I'll be the last one to close the door if need be, if that's what the Lord wants. The Lord can do that. He chooses not to at times, and Satan has not been able to thwart the purposes of God and the influence of this congregation. It's been sweet. It's been rich. And great confidence comes to the church when we believe in the Lord of his church and that he is set apart as the instrument of his heavenly father for redemption and retribution. He is the truth. And when you let him define the gospel, when you let him define who the people of God are, when you let him define ministry and him define how we're to move forward and he is the one who tells us what we're to do in the middle of affliction, then you know the Lord of the church can protect you and when you believe that he's the one who opens and no one will shut and who shuts and no one will open, then, then you have great confidence to keep the word of his perseverance. Beloved, we need to be that kind of ministry. I don't know what's coming. We don't know what's coming. I certainly cannot imagine what would have filled the minds of these who went on to read the rest of John's prophecy and all the frightening things that were imminent. They're still imminent. They will happen at the return of Christ, and we will study those things. I hope as we study it, we will continue to refer back to the knowledge that our Lord is holy and he's true and he has the keys. And we are to trust him. And if we will overcome, as we'll study next time, so much riches are there for his people. All judgment has been given to the Son. He has the power to save and the power to leave people in a state of gracelessness. We must not fear what will come against the church because the Lord of his church is holy and true and has the keys. Amen? Let's pray. Father, we come before you tonight <clears throat> knowing that we are not in the circumstances that this beloved congregation was in at the time. We're not there yet. We have our own difficulties and afflictions and trials and certainly are aware that the truth is confronting an evil culture around us and will no doubt cause persecution to rise because we're trying to live godly. And you've promised it. But oh, how wonderful it is to know that the Lord of the church 
is the servant raised up, our Messiah set apart for redemption and retribution. And you're just and you're true. And what you say is right no matter what anyone else says, no matter what human beings and false systems raise up against the knowledge of you. We come back to you who are true. And you say you have the keys. And you were given those keys by your heavenly Father because you were raised from the dead. Proof was furnished. You are the one whom the Father has made, both Lord and Christ. You are the one who will sit on the eternal throne. You are at the right hand of your Father. You have all authority. All judgment's been given to you. You tell us who's in and who's out. And so we don't have to capitulate to cultural definitions of the kingdom or God's people or new gospels and so-called messiahs. We just need to be word-centered and steadfast. We need to keep your word and not deny your name and persevere. All these promises will be ours. Thank you, Lord, for, for being the Lord of glory and power to whom every knee will bow. We're stunned that we will stand there with you and even our enemies will bow at our feet and they will know that you have loved us. Here on earth we're hated, but you love us and you are Lord. And so that gives us great reason to be comforted. Not self-confidence, but great confidence in you that you love us and that you'll preserve your people. So change us because of this. Change the way we live and what we hold to and how we search your word and how we believe it. Humble us under it. Help us to flee those human notions and the fallen thoughts that bubble up into our minds and the, the static of moral corruption that reigns within our unredeemed humanity. Teach us to flee those things. Come to your word and to keep it. And we ask this for your glory's sake and your name's sake in your grace.